Before we begin today's show, a quick message. Throughout this year, we've brought you stories on everything from conversations with the Grammy-nominated LSU marching band to stories on Louisiana's voting rights history. On Louisiana Considered, we strive to tell stories that are diverse and thought-provoking. So if you like our show, you can donate at WRKF or WWNO.org. Thanks. Now here's the show. This is Louisiana Considered on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Diane Mack. Just ahead on today's show, we visit with French photographers who spent the summer documenting life in Terrebonne Parish. And a preview of the Crescent City Chamber Music Festival as it gears up for its eighth season. But first... In Louisiana, all eyes are on the saltwater wedge seeping into the Mississippi River, threatening our drinking water supply for the first time in more than 30 years. Not only is saltwater unsafe to drink, but it also could have an insidious effect on the region's water infrastructure, where it could linger in lead pipes and cause lead contamination. Here to tell us more about the health impacts of saltwater is Dr. Joseph Cantor, State Health Officer of Louisiana. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you today. Can you start by telling us more about the risks? What happens if someone accidentally drinks salt water, and how much would one need to drink for this to be dangerous? For most people, the salt itself is not a concern. The body's ability, the average adult's ability to handle and process increased salt far exceeds what someone is going to drink because of taste. In, In other words, vast majority of people are going to stop drinking water if this actually happens well before it becomes a health risk to them. That said, there are some at-risk populations that we are honed in on and concerned about. Um, Infants who uh, have tap water used to mix with their formula, individuals who are on a low-sodium diet by their doctor, typically because of hypertensive or blood pressure concerns is another. And for that same reason, pregnant women typically in the third trimester of their pregnancy because they're particularly at risk for hypertensive complications. Now, we've mentioned that Louisiana's water infrastructure is largely made up of lead pipes. But why might that cause lead contamination in the water? And what are the risks of that? Yeah, that really is the larger concern. I'm glad that you brought it up. We have old piping infrastructure in this part of the state. Uh, lead pipes are still on the ground in many places, cast iron, galvanized spitting, lead solder. All of that is a corrosive risk should the sodium chloride increase. And this actually is the larger concern than just the salt in the water itself. It's the potential for corrosion and leaching of heavy, heavy metals like lead and copper. We know this is a potential should the level of sodium chloride increase to what we fear it would increase if the large-scale solutions don't come in time uh, to alleviate this. I'll tell you, the plan to guard against this is very frequent monitoring, very frequent testing of the water, all the way at the end of the distribution system, at people's taps, in their pump, at their faucet. This is something that we do during normal times. It's not something new to comply with the federal lead and copper rule. Every water system has to test the lead and copper at the customer's home, from the, literally from the faucet. So it's not something new. We know how to do this. We work very closely with the water systems. What is new 
is the frequency. We'll be testing much more frequently as systems if and when they become inundated with the saltwater branch. If someone is exposed to salt water in their drinking supply or even lead contamination, what should they do? Well, you know, I, I think if a system gets inundated by the wedge, it will be broadcasted widely. What will happen if and when a sodium a system has sodium chloride above the level of 250 parts per million is there will be a high sodium water advisory notice issue. This has already happened for parts of lower Plaquemines Parish, on Boothville and Venice and, um, and in Port Sulphur. At that point, there will be bottled water made available on a very large scale coordinated through that particular parish. So people will switch drinking to bottled water. There will be wide scale testing at that point and communication as to when the water would be safe to drink if there are heavy metal contaminations. But it might be different for different parishes, and different parishes have different water systems within those parishes. So it's going to be very important to pay close attention to the information your parish is putting out. Wherever you hear about boil water advisors, which is something we deal with quite frequently, that's where you're going to need to turn to to get information about what is happening in your particular water system. Dr. Joseph Cantor is the State Health Officer of Louisiana. Thanks for being here. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Two French photographers spent the summer documenting life down the bayou in Terrebonne Parish. Audouin de Vernet and Wayne Bach traveled throughout the area capturing images of indigenous French culture and how coastal communities are confronting climate change. Their photos will be on display starting next week at Point of Shen's new elementary school. They join us now in the studio to tell us more about their project. Audouin Wayan, thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. First, tell me, how do two French photographers end up in southeast Louisiana? Okay, so this is Audouin. Uh, yeah, so, well, I moved here uh, 10 years ago, and uh, uh, so Wayan, his family uh, arrived about a year ago. So I work for the French consulate, and then one day I got a, a comment on one of my pictures because I take pictures for the consulate, and, and I got a guy saying, uh, uh, oh, uh, who's the guy behind the camera? And then, you know, <laughs> basically that was why, and then we, we grabbed a, a drink, and then uh, that's it. Exactly, yeah. Uh, I call this the French connection. Uh, so basically I, was, uh, just, I just arrived in New Orleans last year, and um, I thought I need to build my network. I, I need to... Uh, meet people and uh, start making research about um, what's happening in Louisiana because I'm a documentary photographer. Uh, so that's my uh, goal is to find um, uh, significant projects to work on. Now I'm looking at some of the photos you took. One shows a little girl covering her face. There are moss-covered trees in the foreground. It looks like she's playing hide-and-seek. Another shows a sailboat ominous clouds and ghostly oaks. Tell me about these images. I think these are both by you, Audouin. So um, the boat uh, with the clouds, I think it's your image, Wyan, but uh, the girl with uh, covering her face, that's me. So, yeah, so the girl that was covering her face, it was during the summer camp, and it was like a, a boat trip uh, out in uh, the the ancestral mounds. So they were basically visit, visiting their ancestors and uh, with uh, mm, the tribal council member telling them the story of uh, 
their ancestors. So, and it was very hot. It was very, um, uh, very dense uh, wilderness. And uh, she was kind of playing a, a little game of hide, in, hide and seek. And it was like uh, I try to uh, take that pictures as like uh, as a game and as a, a little bit like a like a dream. Also, you know, kind of kind of dreamy oniric pictures. And uh, yeah, that's um, that's what I tried to do for some of my pictures. Yeah. Yeah. And Wayne, what about you? Uh, yeah, so on my hand, uh, the goal was really to uh, put emphasis on on their legacy, on on what's what's their heritage, uh, because this uh, Indian tribe uh, they have been in this area for centuries, and I really wanted to uh, showcase uh, their um, how they use these lands, how they uh, behave on these lands, uh, because I think during the summer camp, one of the uh, main uh, points of interest for the the kids was to really um, get uh, a knowledge about uh, their lands, about nature, about uh, the richness of the area, uh, and also to um, learn how to respect uh, this area. So um, fishing is one of the main activities uh, in this area. This is what uh, uh, people do for a living, um, not only, but this is a, a huge margin uh, of, of fishermen in this area. So that was my goal, really to uh, emphasize on the strengths of those people. Can you describe um, some of your favorite photos that you took for the project? Yes, sure. So um, there is uh, one picture that really struck me is this aerial view of Pointe de Chien. Um, I, I did this photo with a drone, uh, and we can really understand uh, with this single photo how those people live and where they live, because you can see how Pointe de is surrounded by wetlands everywhere, uh, on the left side, on the right side, and at the south you get this uh, huge gate uh, that forms uh, the Morganza to the Gulf uh, levee system. Um, so you really see how Pointe Chien is at the end of, uh, not the world, but uh, <laughs> at the end of Louisiana. Now this community, Pointe Chien, is living on the edge as waters rise, land slips away, and storms become more intense and frequent. Did you feel a sense of urgency to document it while it's still there? And if so, are these themes captured in your work? Yes, uh, there is urgency. Uh, and to be honest, I was blown away by how some uh, people in New Orleans ignore uh, what's happening uh, one hour away from uh, New Orleans. And I really think uh, we need to raise awareness on, on this because we feel safe in New Orleans. Uh, I'm not talking about uh, storms, hurricanes, but in terms of uh, other types of climate change effects, uh, but we are not. And so uh, I think my my goal during this documentary for several months was to really build a, uh, a, a body of work that could be used to raise awareness and to make people understand how uh, everyone needs to be involved, not only uh, the Pointe Chien Indian tribe, because that's what they do on a daily basis. They seem to be sometimes leftovers by the um, by the government, by the parish, by the local uh, officials, and they really make action, uh, significant action, uh, by themselves, like releasing oyster shells in the bayou to uh, rebuild 
the, the coast. They uh, plant cypress trees to uh, prevent damage from uh, hurricanes. They backfill some of the canals that have been dredged by uh, oil companies in the like 70s, I guess. Um, they protect their house. They try to better predict uh, uh, weather, hurricanes. So it's, it's really impressive to see people really taking actions on their hands instead of waiting for uh, uh, governments or uh, other types of uh, people to, uh, to, to do something. We are speaking with photographers Ardouin de Vernette and Wayan Bach, who spent the summer documenting life in Terrebonne Parish. Like we said at the top of the conversation, your photos will be displayed permanently at Pointe-Chen's new elementary school. Where did that idea come from? So, Audouin here. Um, so, uh, it's my colleague Jacques, uh, who's the cultural attaché at the consulate, Jacques Baron, the consulate attaché, uh, who came up with that idea, actually. So, he wanted to bring two different two French photographers, uh, so to, two different visions, two different formats to talk about uh, this community, which represent another aspect of the diversity of the French-speaking speak, French world here. Um, so, the French-speaking community all around the world is called La Francophonie. And it's about 300, uh, 320 million uh, speakers, and it's constantly growing. And so the Pointe-aux-Chênes uh, Pointe Indian tribe is a vibrant part of this worldwide community, and it's contributing to its growth with that new school. So um, that's why we wanted to, to highlight um, as a part of the extreme diversity of the French-speaking scope here in Louisiana, because you, you often have Louisiana described as, you know, either Cajun or Creole. There's some other French, and the point of chien French, the way they speak French, is very specific, and it has a lot to do with their history, and um, that's another part of what we were trying to talk about here. People told them not to speak French for many, many years, and they lost it, and they tried to regain that identity and that culture, and it's very important for them. What messages do you hope your photos send to students and the larger community? I think those photos are really important um, because it's, it's a way to document the current situation of, of South Louisiana, and this can literally disappear. Um, so there are numerous nonprofit, amazing nonprofits that work on projects to uh, help rebuild the coast, help prevent uh, more damage. And I think it's also uh, good to uh, to show those actions, to see that uh, there are things happening, and you can get involved. Oduan here. I uh, just wanted to add also, yeah, um, that's 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 right. And it's I think also it's about. Uh, representation, I think, as well. Uh, it's their territory and, and their community being documented. And I think uh, it's just to s for them to see themselves on the wall in pictures which we hope they like, but to see themselves rep documented, represented, it's uh, uh, the places they always knew. Um, it's, it's um, yeah, it's a way for them to... Uh, it's like photography. I was there at that time. I did this uh, at that moment, and it's going to be there forever because it's fixed on an image. And uh, I think uh, we hope that's going to mean um, a lot for them and for, you know, to, to see this, themselves validated somewhere by photography. I don't know. It's, uh, um, uh, it's, it's another way to pay tribute to them and their endeavors for what they do for the climate, for the culture, for the French language. Adouane de Vignette 
N. Weyenbach, are French photographers who spent the summer capturing the lives of residents in Pontichen and Terrebonne Parish. Photos of their work will be displayed at the school, Ecole Pontichen, as part of a permanent collection. A dedication ceremony for the school will be held on October 2nd. Thank you both for being here. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. The renowned New York-based Manhattan Chamber Players will headline the Crescent City Chamber Music Festival, kicking off its eighth season with seven free concerts in venues across New Orleans. Festival director, violist, and native New Orleanian Luke Fleming is also on the faculty of the University of New Orleans School of the Arts, and he joins us now with details. Luke, welcome to Louisiana Considered. Thank you, Diane. Great to talk to you again. You know, I believe this event is a musical ministry for you with a mission. Would you agree? Oh, most definitely. Uh, as you said, I'm a New Orleans native, and I, you know, I, I lived outside of New Orleans for a long time. When I did my master's and doctorate at Juilliard in New York, and I lived there many years after. But New Orleans was always still home. My family's there. And there, there is such great music in New Orleans already, of course. It's all over the city, classical, jazz, you name it, opera. Um, but I spend all my time, you know, traveling around playing chamber music. And I really just wanted to bring some of what I was doing to New Orleans and, and share with the community there. And that's what we've been doing over the last eight years as the festival's grown. So now what is your mission as you bring chamber music to a variety of venues, some of them unconventional to the city? So we call ourselves an outreach mission-centric festival, uh, and we are that. So on top of the seven free public concerts that we do, we do over 30 outreach performances in uh, local hospitals, nursing homes, schools, uh, homeless shelters, other um, helping organizations, that kind of thing. Uh, it's something that I've been doing for years as a, as a traveling performer. Outreach concerts are not uncommon, but for them to be this really the focal point of a festival is somewhat uncommon. But I knew from the beginning that I wanted to do that in New Orleans. My parents are both ministers. So when I was growing up, I spent a lot of time visiting hospitals and nursing homes. Some of my first times like playing for people privately were in those situations. And you're never gonna find a more thankful audience member than when you go into a situation like that and play for people. And I thought it was really important to have that be a major component of, of whatever I was gonna come up with uh, for what I did in New Orleans. And uh, it's continued to be that for us. That being said, even some of our free public concerts, uh, not just the outreach concerts, are in rather unconventional venues. For example, the brewery concert we do at Urban South Brewery every year since our first year, a very popular concert, I might add. We do uh, classical music with beer pairings. It's very fun. Uh, but, you know, some most of the free public concerts are in more conventional venues like concert halls and churches and that sort of thing. Now, you have a stellar lineup. The theme of this year's festival is entitled Songs of the Earth. Tell us about your ensemble and residents that's headlining the event and also about what we can look forward to on the program. 
So the Manhattan Chamber Players is actually a chamber music collective of mostly New York-based musicians, most of whom I came up with in the music world. We were at, went to the same music festivals, attended the same schools. On Sunday, October the 15th, we have a concert at Felicity Church at 5.30 in the late afternoon called The Sunset. And as the sun sets on the beautiful stained glass in Felicity Church, we'll have music that's all tied in to sunset or it has an autumnal quality let's say and then the whole concert will end just as the sun's going down with Ottorino Respighi's Il Tramonto which means the sunset which is for soprano and string quartet an amazing piece of music and it'll be a, a beautiful way to close that concert out um, uh, something else I'll mention which I think uh, people probably have a lot of interest in is the first concert opening night October 12th at Trinity Episcopal Church will feature the four seasons of Vivaldi and Piazzolla, uh, done back to back. Very exciting. Now, how are you making these classical concerts more audience-friendly, and why is that important to you? Well, a couple of things. First of all, the concerts are free. We do you know, have a suggested donation, but the people are absolutely uh, able to attend without worrying about the cost. So that's one thing. That's, that's an obvious thing, I suppose. Another thing is we keep the concerts relatively short. These aren't your, your typical two-hour, you know, big first half, 20-minute intermission, and then a big second half as well kind of concerts. The concert runtime generally is about an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, we, ha- we have, uh, you know, maybe 40 minutes of music and a short pause, five, 10 minutes, and then we have one more piece to close things out, and then we're done. So we keep them on the short side. And... Uh, with the changing venues, I think people get a, a, a sense of the variety and the difference of acoustics from space to space if they come to more than one concert, as opposed to having all the concerts in the same place. Uh, I also do a pre-concert talk before each of the shows, except the Urban South Brewery show. They don't need a pre-concert talk for that. People know plenty about beer already. Uh, <laughs> but. Um, I, the pre-concert talks are very informal. We have a little Q&A at the end, but it gives the audience something to listen for, a little historical background on pieces, most of which they're probably not familiar with. So they, they walk in and get a little preparation for the concert, and it's a fairly short show, and it's very informal. And then uh, they go home having heard some of the greatest chamber repertoire performed by some of the world's most sought-after artists. And you don't have to dress up? The performers dress up, but we certainly don't require that the audience does. People come in shorts and t-shirt all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Crescent City Chamber Music Festival director, violist, and native New Orleanian, Luke Fleming. Always a pleasure to talk with you. You too, Diane. Thanks so much. The Crescent City Chamber Music Festival will celebrate its eighth anniversary with seven free public concerts throughout New Orleans from October 12th through the 22nd. More info is available at CrescentCityChamberMusicFestival.com. There have been additions to the lineup since our conversation with Luke Fleming, international soloist and piano virtuoso David Fung, and vocalist Daniel Moody will also perform.
From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Thanks to our guest, State Health Officer Dr. Joseph Cantor, photographers Audouin de Vignette and Wyan Barr, and Crescent City Chamber Music Festival Director Luke Fleming. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcast. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation.